Please be seated. Our text this morning is um, it's one of the parables that Jesus told, one of the more famous parables. Uh, it's typically called the Good Samaritan. And so I'm going to read it for us, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So let's read this story that Jesus told that I think has incredible relevance for us in this moment in 2020. So let's read it first. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let me pray for us. And I want to look at this parable for a little while together this morning. But let's pray first. Our Lord, we, we ask your grace this morning. Um, sometimes when we read your word, we are um, encouraged and we are um, inspired and we are, we just, we feel good. And other times, oh Lord, when we read your word, it is, it is harder for us. Harder to hear, harder to, to take a look at ourselves, harder to kind of see what it is that we often are that we fail to be. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at a, a really this challenging story, Lord Jesus, that you told that we need, Lord, would you meet us in the way that you alone can? When, when we feel defensive, Lord, would you remind us that you are our justification, that you are our righteousness? And Lord, if we feel indifferent, would you stir us by your spirit to to love the things that you love and to hate the things that you hate? And Lord, if we feel discouraged, would you lift our face and remind us that not just of your love for us, but of your patience with us, of your long bearing with us, with your your perseverance with us? Lord, without, without that, we have no hope. So Lord, would you meet us as we look at this parable, meet us in the ways that you alone can. And we pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. The parable is just a, a quick reminder. You know, I think um, whenever I preach a parable, I, I like to try to remember that Jesus used stories, and stories have a power because we can see ourselves in them. Uh, commentators have said parables are kind of like a mirror, where Jesus is holding up this mirror in front of us, and he means for us to see two things. He means for us to see ourselves as we really are. 
And if we're being honest, if you're like me, we don't often love to do that. It's either to remain either um, just keep the blind spots because it's easier that way. But it's an invitation to see ourselves rightly. And at the same time, it's an invitation to see the heart of God rightly. And so that's what we're going to do with this parable. And I want to do it, I think, because it's a story about three things. And the way I want to approach it is just to talk about the three things that I think Jesus is trying to drive home for the people he was telling it to and to us. So the three ways that we're going to look at it, the three things I think it's about is first, our compassion. Second, our indifference. And then thirdly, our solidarity. So let's just get into it. Let's go in in that way. So first, let's think about our compassion for a little bit together through the lens of this story. But verse 29, I think, is the most interesting how this whole thing gets started. Verse 29, this lawyer who is testing Jesus, he says, "But, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? I think a little historical context is important to the question, especially that of the racial tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Samaritans lived just 35 miles from their Jewish neighbors, but the tensions between the two had been high for a long time. Their conflict went all the way back to the fracturing of the kingdom of Israel that became when it became the north and the south. So the conflict between the Samaritans and the, and the Jews was old and it was deep. Uh, one writer points this out. He says, Judea, uh, Judean leaders tried to resolve the conflict. The priest Ezra thought there can be reconciliation between these two societies, but the governor Zerubbabel took a racist approach. Their blood is impure. They're simply not us. Verbal disputes led to insults, insults to violence, and the communities separated. So the question that this Jewish lawyer asks is a rather loaded one between the lines. He's saying, are they my neighbor? In other words, should I care about them or just those in my life who I want to be my neighbor? Recently, I've been reading this book that's been um, really incredible. It's called The Warmth of Other Suns. And it's a story of the migration of blacks from the south to the north, essentially from Reconstruction all the way through 1970. And the, the author, Isabel Wilkerson, does this incredible job. She interviewed just hundreds and hundreds of people. And she ends up following the story of these three people, one from Mississippi, sharecroppers in Mississippi who went to Chicago, uh, a, a man who worked the orange groves in Florida who moves to, to Harlem, New York, and then an aspiring doctor in Louisiana who ends up in, in Los Angeles. But she tells this one story in the book about this, uh, this man, Harvey Clark, who in 1949, he was originally from Mississippi, but he had just gotten back from serving in World War II, a black man, Harvey Clark. And he, like thousands and thousands of black folks, was de- were deciding to move their families, and he was deciding to move his family of five to Chicago to try to escape Jim Crow. But the awakening that he found there was really rude. Chicago, like every other city in America, they told black people where they could and couldn't live. And so they moved into this one-room tenement, a family of five, paying $56 a month, which was 50% more than white tenants in white neighborhoods. And so by May of 1951, they had to get out. It wasn't working, and the Clarks couldn't believe their stroke of luck. They found the perfect apartment. It had five rooms. It was clean and modern. It was closer to the bus station And it cost only $60 a month. But there was a catch. It was in the all-white working-class suburb of Chicago, Cicero. The day they moved in, a group of white protesters met them as they tried to unload the truck. And the chief of police even showed up, and he told them that they should know better. 
that they should get going, and they should get going out of there fast because they would not be moving in. So the Clarks determined to grasp this life that should have been equally afforded to them. They sued, and they won the right to move into their apartment. And just as they managed to get their furniture moved in, a white crowd grew larger and larger outside of their apartment. A man from a white supremacy group was handing out flyers that said, Keep Cicero white. And so the Clarks, with the growing crowd, fled. And here's what Isabel Wilkerson writes. She says, a mob stormed the apartment and threw the family's furniture out of a third floor window as the crowds cheered below. The neighbors burned the couple's marriage license and the children's baby pictures. They overturned the refrigerator and tore the stove and plumbing fixtures out of the wall. They tore up the carpet. They shattered the mirrors. They bashed in the toilet bowl. They ripped out the radiators. They smashed the piano that Clark had worked overtime to buy for his daughter. And when they were done, they set the whole pile of the family's belongings, now strewn on the ground below, on fire. In an hour, the mob destroyed what had taken nine years to acquire. What was this white crowd saying to this black family? You will not be our neighbors. I think another way of defining a neighbor is someone who should get who should get our compassion, our care, and our concern, not because they've earned it or deserve it, but simply because they deeply matter to God. And yet, if you're like me, the reality is that we are often much more like this lawyer, trying to justify ourselves that we're not racist because we've never done X, Y, or Z, rather than admit the painful truth that we have failed to love our neighbor that we have failed to care, that we have failed to give them our concern and our compassion. The painful truth that we have failed to love our neighbors, either because it doesn't line up with our political party's agenda or the harder truth because we simply do not care. And the question for us, I think this morning, one of among many is, are we more concerned about the threat of Marxism or about loving our neighbors? Are we more focused on defending our political views or defending the dignity of our neighbors? Or maybe the better question is, who gets our compassion? Who gets our care and concern? Or more pointedly, who doesn't? Who doesn't get it? That question, who is my neighbor? It feels a little bit like how I feel about All Lives Matter. The sentiment stays vague, so we don't have to face the painful reality that we have specific neighbors who have not gotten our compassion and our care and our concern. Who is my neighbor? It has the echoes of Cain's question. Just as he murders his brother, am I my brother's keeper? The question is almost so rhetorical that it doesn't need an answer, but it does need an answer because we are so good at avoiding these painful realities. Who gets our compassion? It's the first thing that Jesus is inviting us to wrestle with. But the second one is our indifference. Because I think our indifference is is so much part of the problem, which is is why Jesus tells this surprising parable. The the parable is surprising, and I'm trying to, I'm going to work it out as best I can. The gist of it is this. A Jewish man is on his way to Jericho, where he's robbed, stripped, and beaten, and left for dead. And a priest, most likely on his way to lead worship, passes by him, And so does essentially his associate pastor, a Levite, following the priest's lead, passes by as well. 
But it's not until a Samaritan, the enemies of Jews in this day, the, 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 the people who hated one another, a Samaritan who has, who has faced injustice from Jewish people sees this Jewish man lying half dead on the road and he's moved to compassion. And at both great cost to himself and great risk to himself, he takes full care of him. Great cost to himself because not only does he give him his oil and his wine to heal his wounds, but as you see the part that he takes him to the innkeeper and he gives him two denarii, which would essentially have been two full days worth of labor pay, on top of saying whatever else he needs, I'm good for. The sacrifice and what he does, the, the, the money that would go to his family is, is huge, and he is doing it for this Jewish man. But there's also a great risk that I think I didn't, when I first read this parable, I didn't see. The great risk is he takes this man, think with me for a second, he takes this man into the heart of a city in which his own kind is hated, into a hotel in which he couldn't stay. And he takes him at great risk to himself because he doesn't know what racism he might face as he drops this half-dead Jewish man off at this inn. The, thing, the best I could come up with to help me think about it is it would be like a black man in the middle of Jim Crow coming upon a wounded white man in Assembly Street and not only risking helping him, therefore being accused of the crime, but then taking him to a hotel in which he could never stay and then giving up his entire paycheck for the week, the one his family needed for food and shelter to see that this man got back on his feet again, there would have been so many ways it could have ended badly for him. You know, we, we typically think of this parable as a gentle nudge, at least if you're like me, a gentle nudge that we should do good things for those less fortunate than us. Volunteer a little here, donate a little there, maybe take a mission trip. And if you're like me, get some good pics to show the receipts that are doing something good. But I like the way that one pastor describes it. He says it like this. The Good Samaritan story is not just an example of compassionate spirituality. It is a critique against religious passivity. If church people won't work for justice and mercy, God will find some other people who will. The question is, why didn't the priest and why didn't the Levite get involved? And I think to be fair to them, it's not just... It's not just that they didn't care. Most likely, this is what I missed the first several times I read this parable. Most likely, they were thinking of the strict purity laws. And they knew if they went over to this man who was half dead and could be full dead, that if they were to get the purity law said, if you were to touch or get near a dead man, that they would be out of work for several weeks. So they themselves passed by, not just out of indifference, but they themselves passed by because they would have been seriously inconvenienced and out of work for a few weeks. You know, the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? But Jesus' reply is so genius because he essentially lays out what it looks like to actually love our neighbor. And he lays bare the reality that we don't love our neighbors because we are far more interested in ourselves. This is where it hits home for me. So a few years ago, my kids, uh, they go to Satchel Fords, a public school uh, in our neighborhood. And there's this opportunity. It's a really great, the principal uh, set this up maybe five years ago, where dads, it's called watchdog. So dads can like just show up and volunteer for the day. And essentially what the principal asks you to do is to kind of tend to either disruptive kids or kids that maybe need a little attention that the teacher can't give them. 
And so I went, um, they gave me this ridiculously oversized shirt that I, you wear that has a watchdog on it. And it's kind of fun because you're sort of like a hero for the day. Like the kids like to high five the watchdog when we could still high five each other pre-quarantine times. Um, and so I end up in this one classroom and there's a kid, his name is Kamarius, and he's got his hood on, uh, a black kid who's probably 10 at the time, and they'd asked just me to talk to him some. So I try to engage Kamarius a little bit, and it ends up, we just, something about the way the Lord worked it, we just really connected. We started talking about his love for animals, which I don't relate to, but um, my wife helps me try to love animals. And we're talking about his love for animals, we're talking about his life, and we end up really connecting. And as, um, it's kind of the way it unfolded, is I end up getting, giving my number to the guidance counselor so that maybe, because Kamarius lives in... Um, some really awful apartments that are less than a mile from our house. If you know Forest Acres, it's the way they're kind of sprinkled in, the government housing. And so Camarius ended up reaching out, and Asher and I uh, took Camarius uh, to grab Zestos and then go to PetSmart, and this was probably two years ago. And it was a wake-up call for me of how different we live a mile from each other, but our lives are so different. Uh, Camarius doesn't know, or he knows his dad, but his dad, he sees him maybe once or twice a year, he lives with his mom and a host of other siblings. At the time, his brother had just gotten out of jail, um, and we're not exactly sure for what. And so he's, we're, I'm learning about his life. And then, this is two years ago, and we do this maybe a couple of times, and then I just stopped. Why? Because it was hard. It was inconvenient. The questions that we, that, you know, we can ask ourselves is, is, why does he live in a small apartment with brothers and sisters and aunts and cousins, often all crammed in? The hard truth is because for generations his family had been told where they could and could not live. Because redlining meant that his grandparents and his great-grandparents couldn't own a house in a desirable neighborhood. Uh, Why does his mom work a factory job, which means he's often left alone in his apartment to hear and see things that he told us about that an 11-year-old should never have to see? Because for generations, his family was told, these are the schools you can go to, and these are the jobs you can have, and these are the ones you most certainly can't. And why did I stop making an effort to grab dinner with him and take him to PetSmart? And to buy toys for the hamster he so loves, Max. Because I got wrapped up in my own life again. That's why Ibram Kendi, he nails it when he says this. This really floored me. He says, the actual foundation of racism is not ignorance and hate, but self-interest. It's self-interest. Some more hard truth. According to historians from 1880 to 1920, a black person in the South was lynched or burned every four days. Every four days for 40 years. Where were their Christian neighbors? Redlining, the systematic denial of fair mortgage lending and housing opportunities to people of color, which officially started in 1934 with the National Housing Act until the Fair Housing Act of 1968, but existed unofficially well before and well after. Not only was it grave injustice toward black 
families, but it created a massive wealth gap in our country between blacks and whites. Again, where were their Christian neighbors? I know the answer because it's me. It's the reality of my own life. They counted the white neighbors. We, the white Christian neighbors, counted both the risk and the cost of fighting for justice and decided to stay safely on the sidelines of an increasingly comfortable life. Here's the thing. If racism is reduced to simply the things that you personally say or do or think, I imagine a good many of us would pat ourselves on the back that we're not racist. But what if racism is much bigger than that? What if it includes all the things that we haven't done, that we haven't said, to stand up to racial injustice when we see it, to do something about it? Then I can't imagine too many of us are going to pat ourselves on the back. I love the way that our PCA brother, Ligon Duncan, he just just said it like this. I love the way he said it. He said, anti-racism is not the gospel, but the gospel is anti-racism, and racism is anti-gospel. Hence, heresy of the deepest die. So first, our compassion. Second, our indifference. And the last thing I want you to see is our solidarity, because that's what Jesus moves into in this story. Because still the most surprising part of Jesus' parable hasn't been said yet. The story that these Jewish leaders would have expected to hear was about a good Jew helping a wounded Samaritan. Do you see that? That's the story they would have expected. In other words, they would have wanted their version of the blind side or the help or green book, where at the end of the day, their people do the saving instead of being the ones who need saving. But that's not the story that Jesus told. He told the one where the man that they could most identify with was the one left for dead and desperately in need of being saved, only to find the man who saved his life was the man who knew so much about injustice and violence and cruelty. Jesus is inviting them and us to see that we ourselves are, in his words in Revelation, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And God has loved us and drawn near to us and redeemed us and bound up our wounds and he is healing our wounds at great cost to himself. But he's also inviting them and us to see something hard. That if we don't love our neighbors who have experienced injustice and indifference, then our religion is in vain. This parable blows up the often used excuse of personal responsibility. The Jewish man on his way to Jericho had done nothing to deserve the injustice he experienced, and he could do nothing to pull himself out of its effects. His situation wasn't created by his choices, and he needed the care and compassion and concern of another if he was ever if he was going to be alive. But it also invites us to see something crucial about Jesus. That Jesus, he's not just the one. I think when we normally read this parable, we think, ah, he's the one who has compassion on the wounded. And he certainly is that. But the most surprising thing about this parable is he is also the one in solidarity with those whose lives have been marked by injustice and indifference. We can say it like this. Jesus is the good Samaritan. He's the outsider born into poverty of questionable heritage And yet the one who sees us left for dead and rushes over to us at great cost to himself and does everything to make us whole again. But the thing I failed to see for so many years, but he is also the man who was robbed and stripped and left for dead, not in the street, but at the cross, just outside of Jerusalem. The very road in which his story takes place 
is the very road he walked to his own merciless yet merciful death. I love the way that Robert Capon says it. He says it like this. He says, all those good Samaritan medical centers should really have been named men who fell among the thieves' hospitals. It is the patients in their sufferings and deaths, not the help in white coats, who look more like Jesus on the cross. It is precisely in the hungry, the thirsty, the estranged, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned that we find or ignore the Savior himself. And we could add, it's in the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Elijah McLean, as well as every single person who was lynched every four days from 1880 to 1920 that we can see the death of Jesus and the injustice that he knew. And the question is, is Jesus is clearly in solidarity with those who have known deep injustice. And the question for us is, are we? Are we? I'll close with this. One of the best films I've seen in the last several years is Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. It was a book first. And Brian Stevenson is a real person who has worked his whole life, a black man who has worked his whole life just fighting against the injustice, racial injustice. And there's a scene in the movie where uh, Michael B. Jordan, who's playing Brian Stevenson, he shows up. Brian Stevenson is trying to uh, meet with a man in prison who he's heard has been really unjustly charged and, and shouldn't be there. And there's this white officer as he checks in that makes him strip. And so as Brian Stevenson is going to try to meet with this, uh, this man in prison, this white officer makes him start taking off his clothes And it gets really uncomfortable because he's down to his boxers and and this white racist officer is like, yep, those two. And you watch in the movie, you watch Michael B. Jordan's face just full of humiliation, anger, and yet he does it. And he does it because that's what neighbor love looks like. It's solidarity in the injustice that the man in prison had faced. He is going through it to a much smaller degree, but he's going through it because he wants this man to be free. And when I watched that scene for the first time, it's hard to watch, but it is a beautiful picture of Jesus who was willing to face the deepest of injustice to love and free and heal us. And he's calling us to join him to be a people who are Christ-like in our love for justice and our hatred of injustice. Let's pray. Our Lord, we look to you as the one who has compassion on us. We look to you as the one who is not indifferent toward our sufferings, who is not indifferent toward our pain, And we look to you as the one who is in solidarity with us and with our neighbors who have not had our compassion and who have known our indifference. Lord, would you move in us in ways that you alone can to love what you love, to hate what you hate. Lord, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are patient with us. But Lord, would you continue to make us more like you? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. We'll stand and sing our closing hymn, The Compassion Hymn.